Welcome to Ag Vic Talk, keeping you up to date with information from Agriculture Victoria. Managing a dairy of 400 head is a big enough task in itself. However, it becomes even more so when you're in a location that makes it too expensive to freight feed in, so you have to grow everything yourself. A location that also sees your property split in two by a river. That's the life of Brett Finlay, who's a dairy farmer near Corriong in the northeast of Victoria. And he joins me in the Ag Vic Talk studio. Brett, thanks for your time. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Drew. Brett, you farm on a unique property. You're near Corriong, but you actually straddle the border, I understand. That's right, yes. How does that work? Most of the time, it's not a big issue. The New South Wales part of the property is effectively a little piece of Victoria that just pokes out across the river. During the COVID lockdowns, it has been quite interesting dealing with that. At one stage, technically, we had to pick which staff member could go and get the cows in in the afternoon because uh, not everyone was allowed across the border. The fact that the border is a river is problematic unless you've got a bridge, surely. Um, Yes, we built a bridge back in uh, 1996. And that was money well spent. Otherwise, yeah, it would be quite difficult to utilise that uh, country across the in New South Wales for grazing on a regular basis. Brett, dairings in your blood. Your dad was a dairy farmer. Was this his piece of land to start with? My uh, great-great-grandfather actually bought Taolong Run, which was all the Victorian side of our valley back in 1860. But then the family lost the... Um, the place and my great-grandfather retained a chunk of it next door to where we farm now. My grandfather bought the original block in 1939. It was an ex-soldier settler block from World War One, and then during dad's time on the farm he was a pretty aggressive purchaser of land and, and he built up about 400 acres, about 160 hectares at home where we milk and um, another 900 acres on the other side of uh, Corriong which we use as an out paddock area. That's a remarkable family history in that area. And being like most farmers, you've probably got fairly detailed weather records that date back, do you? Reasonably, yes. Do they sort of things you occasionally glance at and say, well, it's not quite like what we used to get? Where we are here, we get a, a fair bit of variability, both between and within seasons. So it is part and parcel of managing a farm in the northeast that you've got to be prepared for things to be good or bad and and farm accordingly. We'll drill down into that a little bit more in a moment, Brett, but the dairy property you you have, how many are you milking to start with? Uh, We regard 380 as as about par, so we've actually got a few more in, we're just over 400 at the moment. Generally about 380 is about optimum numbers. From what I understand, you're very focused on producing your own fodder. Yeah, that's um, probably a typical northeast trait. We like to be pretty self-sufficient in forage. We're a long way from most places and truck drivers don't generally like driving over the big hills. They charge us extra. So yes, the more self-sufficient we can be in forage, the better off we are. So Brett, is irrigation a very important part of making sure that you're able to produce that feed? We have a small amount of irrigation. We've got a, a pivot that irrigates about 40 hectares and travelling irrigators that do about another 25 but the majority of the farm is rain fed and we can't irrigate it. So growing as much as you can whenever you can but what about storing it? Is silage part of the process for you? Yeah we make a lot of silage. We tend to do round bales mostly because the majority of my silage is made 
on the out paddock area and carted 20 k's home to feed to the dairy herd. We've played around with pit silage, but transporting it is very problematic and the bales just work better for us. The downside there is we've got a limit on our storage time. We can only store for about two years. We have um, on occasion buried round bales in pits. The country on the on the out paddock is not very good for pits. It's decomposed granite country and they leak very badly. So you're only going to get pretty degraded fibre out of the pits. But if you're in the middle of a drought and fibre prices have gone through the roof, you're paying through the nose for hay, it's worth having it. Brett, if you're trying to grow as much as you can, I imagine nitrogen's pretty important to your farming process. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, we find nitrogen gives us very good value. I've always been a, an aggressive seeker of information and a lot of the time you find stuff that's interesting and um, other times it's like, yes, well, I've heard this before and then occasionally someone's lips will open and some nugget will drop out and uh, I can vividly remember our consultant up here saying to us, uh, why do you use all the nitrogen in the spring? Why don't you use it through the winter and grow the grass and feed it directly? And that was probably one of the big steps forward we made during the farming career is we're probably less inclined to use nitrogen to grow more silage. We're trying to grow more grass through that. If we've got moisture and we've got a chance to grow some grass, let's give it every chance to grow by providing it with some nitrogen. Brett, you said you're an aggressive seeker of information. I was reading through one of the case studies that was done with you and I was actually quite surprised at the list of apps you are constantly trolling through to seek weather information. Most of our profit is derived from growing grass and getting it down a cow's throat and turning it into milk. That's the most profitable thing we can do on our farm. So reading the weather and, and working with the weather and making the best use of, of the conditions is is a big part of that. So yes, when I open my um, browser, most of the favourites in the bookmark bar are weather sites. And I yeah, I'm, I'm on there on a virtually daily basis watching what's going on and, and trying to pick you know, do I need to order some more nitrogen? We get our, not most of our nitrogen in eight tonne bins. So there's a bit of planning ahead. You need to ring up a few days in advance and make sure it's there on farm when you need to be putting it out. You mentioned earlier increasingly you're trying to manage around more frequent dry seasons or more extreme dry seasons. So I imagine nitrogen and growing as much as you can is part of that. But what else are you doing to try and deal with that, Brett? Plenty of silage for those times when we just can't grow it. We also feed um, a fair bit of grain in the bale to the dairy cows. It's it's variable. We tend to peak during the winter when we, we've got large numbers in and growth slow. So yeah, between grain and silage, irrigation gives us another string to our bow, particularly early in the autumn if we can get pastures up and, and running or keep them running through the summer and have them ready to go in the autumn. The other thing we do is uh, I always like to know what the next group of culls are. If I've got to sell 20 cows, which ones are they? So we herd test sort of seven or eight times a year. I like to know they're the, the next group that are probably not quite there yet. If we've got grass and they, we can keep feeding them, well, good. But if we start things start to tighten up, they'd be the first ones to go. And after that, when you sell those, you, you start looking for the next lot. Brett, you said irrigation's not a huge component, but you do do a bit. And I understand that's quite a bit of work that's actually involved in making that work for you. Are you looking at trying to change your irrigation setup to be more effective and less work involved? The topography limits our um, options for irrigating. So the pivot's very time efficient. I can um, irrigate for the day in about 20 minutes, drive over there, start it 
stops on a timer. If I want to do more, the travelling irrigators, I can put on probably not quite enough water for a great deal of work and we've been looking at changing that system perhaps to fixed or big gun sprinklers so they're fixed um, risers with movable heads. There's a fairly significant capital outlay in that and uh, also a fair bit of time involved in doing it. We've been meaning to do that project for the last two summers and with the fires last year and, and then this year we get caught up with a um, project at the dairy and there's only so much you can manage to, to do in the off season so it hasn't quite happened yet. Brett you mentioned the fires there obviously a traumatic thing to go through that's an understatement and you had experienced some losses but has that brought any changes to the way you're running the property? Probably not a whole lot. One thing um, we did see Back in the millennium drought years, 2006-07 was, was a really bad year for us. And I saw some farmers who, for the next 10 years or so, they farmed for 2006, but we never had that season again. So you've got to take into account the average, you, you farm for average conditions and then you have a plan for dealing with the variations on that. So the bushfire was quite traumatic and, and disruptive, but it's... 56 years or something since it happened last time it may be less time till it happens again but from a management point of view there's there's a limited amount we can do to protect ourselves against that. Brett you made a really good point there about farming for previous conditions you talked about herd management there and looking at culling and and also trying to keep your feed up to as greater extent as you can but is there anything else that you're constantly keeping an eye on to try and be that step ahead rather than managing for the year that's been? I try and keep an eye on what's going on with markets and what the price is likely to be. That's obviously a factor in, in the economics of producing marginal milk and more milk from supplementary feed. We've tried to refine our system to work as well as we can get it to work with the conditions that we generally face. You know, as a species, we're, um, we're inclined to look at maximum settings as being the best thing, but actually on a farm, what you're looking for is optimum settings. What's what's about the right cow number? What's about the right feeding rate? Let's sit somewhere there and then move a little bit depending on the conditions. You know, if we've got a low milk price and, and high feed inputs, we'll probably milk a few less cows, get rid of those choppers a bit earlier. What we've seen the last couple of years is probably the, the opposite, where we've got good seasonal conditions, relatively low grain prices, and a good milk price. So last spring after the fires, we'd, we'd lost a few cows with mastitis and various things through the disruption of the fires. And we did look pretty hard at buying some cows, but we figured by the time we got them into the herd and up and running, we probably weren't going to see a lot of benefits. So we, and, and we had a lot of heifers coming in this autumn. So um, we knew we'd be back up to the numbers by now. So... We suffered a little bit for for production for that reason through last spring, but we thought it was the best choice to make under the circumstances. Brett, I do understand one of the things the fires did bring into focus was electricity power management. You were without power for a while and running a dairy in, in a rotunda of, you know, dealing with 400 cows, power is pretty important, I'd imagine. So that was, uh, yeah, a bit of a challenge. Even though we have two of the largest power stations in Australia just over the hill, like literally just in the next valley and the next valley over after that, Murray 1 and Murray 2. 
So even though we're quite close to those power stations, we have no direct connection with them. We're on the end of a long transmission line, so blackouts are a bit of a feature of life up here. Most people have got a generator at the dairy for backup power. So yes, that had proved to be really crucial during the fires. We had 13 days without power and there were people who went for twice that long. The house was less well set up, so yeah, we have looked at, at our options. We're looking at solar and, and a, um, like a Tesla battery on the house, but uh, the Chief Financial Officer is not uh, overly excited by that project yet, so uh, we haven't quite got that one up and running. Longer term then, Brett, are you looking at renewables just for the house, or would that be like something you would consider across the operation, or is that just too big a scale at this point? One of our dilemmas is um, power for the irrigation. So that consumes quite a lot of power. The problem is with spray irrigation, the time when you're going to generate the most power is also the least efficient time to be actually utilising that for irrigation. So the heat of the afternoon when you've got high evaporation rates, yeah, so that's the dilemma. And, and the, the moment battery capacity is quite expensive, you're looking at about $1,000 a kilowatt hour. So generating the power, storing it, and then utilising it overnight's not really economic. Houses are relatively straightforward. They don't use that much electricity in the scheme of things. It's those bigger scale, the irrigation and, uh, you know, if we're moving to a carbon neutral future, how we provide that mobile power for um, tractors and vehicles, that's probably, I think, one of our bigger dilemmas. Looking down the road to the future, do you see any major differences to the way you're running things now, say, compared to maybe in 10 years' time? It's a case of taking it as it comes. Um, we'd like to think that we're, we're going to give our kids a chance to take over the farm one day, but uh, my wife and I met relatively late in life, so we're, uh, we're facing that uh, issue of, of a fairly large intergenerational gap and we're becoming more dependent on uh, employed labour, which is not ideal. That's something we've, we've got to face in the future. We, um, I'm not sure what we're going to do, you know, going down that path. That sounds like a difficult thing that you're managing as, as you get older and, and working out where the farm is actually going. What would you like to see, though, in terms of production on the property? I mean, do you see any greater changes? In, you mentioned carbon neutrality, but there seems to be a long way to go there. And you've, you're also focusing on even planting more trees just to try and provide more shade, I understand. Yeah, the, uh, the the trees are you know a work in progress. We'd probably like to plant more than we, we have so far, but that's one thing that, that I look at when we're, we're looking at, at carbon neutrality, access to that technology to get us from where we are now to being carbon neutral. The path ahead is not always clear as to how that's all going to fit together. In terms of, of productivity, we've sort of reached that steady state. We've been running for the, about the last eight years on a pretty similar level of, um, of production. We had an interesting experience about 15 years ago. We had the, the opportunity to join a discussion group about 100 k's away that was very long established. And they had been meeting every two months over a period of perhaps 20 years. So they had a very good idea of how their farms ran physically, but they also did business analysis. So they understood one another's farms physically and financially we pretty quickly saw you know the similarities they'd worked out what worked for conditions that were similar to ours so trying to get as much grass down the cow's throat as possible so we aim for about three tons of dry matter per cow per year about two tons of grain and 
a ton of dry matter of silage and that produces high 500 kilos per cow by running a modest stocking rate and not pushing too hard and having a, a reasonably high level of, of um, per cow production, you've got the ability there to absorb bad seasons. You can always, you're not pushing the limit on, on cow numbers. You can take a bit of a hit for per cow production without really disrupting the system too much. So that showed us where we could go and move more towards that model over time. Brett Finlay, you've done a remarkable job there building the property to where it is and I really like the description of optimum capacity. All the best for the road ahead and thank you for your time in joining me in the AgVic Talk studio. No worries, Drew. Thank you for listening to AgVic Talk. For more episodes in this series, find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear your feedback, so please leave a comment or rating and share this series with your friends and family. All information is accurate at the time of release. Contact Agriculture Victoria or your consultant before making any changes on farm. This podcast was developed by Agriculture Victoria, authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne.